Now this morning we're going to be looking in, in Judges 5 and what we're looking at really is, is the song of Deborah and it really takes us back over some of the incidents that we, we looked at last week and adds a bit more, bit more detail to them. And just to say tonight what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking in, a, in Ephesians again and this time the focus is going to be, well say today we just hear that North Korea did a, another nuclear test. And we know that in the world around us, things are changing so fast and, and many people feel powerless and afraid in the light of that. Well, the people, the early church of Ephesians faced a very similar uncertain world. And we're going to look at, at what Paul's response, what he says to them as they're tempted to feel powerless and weak and afraid. We're going to look at, at what God brings to his people in that context. Let's just come now and pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who meets with your people in their need and that you're a God who who looks above all else for a response to your love from us. So, Lord, may we be ready to respond to what you're saying to us. May we be ready to be obedient and to step out as you speak to our hearts. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Norman was the man at the factory who sounded the hooter to say when work began and finished. And every morning as he walked past the jewellers, he set his watch by the big clock in the jeweller's window. One day, though, his watch went wrong. So on the way home from work, he took it into the jewellers for mending. Next morning, he picked it up And as he was leaving the shop, he put his watch right by the big clock in the window. Yes, I know that's always right, said the watchmaker. I set it right every morning by the factory hooter. (laughs) I think Norman's working for British Rail by now. But anyway, now in the book that, that I read that story in first time, this was put forward as a lesson in values. How in our lives, we should always try to put the greatest value on things that are absolute and that are unchanging. However, what more and more we actually find in practice is that that what we really value is things that are relative and ever-changing. And often, when this, I think, is revealed most clearly, what we actually value, what really comes first in our lives and in our priorities is when we're faced by those real challenges of life. For you see then, all the pretense, all the posturing, the image maybe that we'd like to present to people, all of that is stripped away from us. And we stand as we really are. And this happens to us, certainly as as Christians. It happens, the challenges, the crises of life they reveal just exactly where Jesus Christ is for us, what he really means in our lives, whether he has that first place as Lord that should always be his. Well, in a similar, of course, a a different way, but similar way, the people of Israel, as we looked at together last week, had to face a fearsome challenge as they took on Sisera and his mighty army, 900 chariots, 
and all. Now, as they put their, their faith, as they put their trust in the Lord, in the absolute, if you like, the relatively small Israelite army was miraculously able to win the victory. But I think that there are some lessons for us to learn, though. There are some challenges for us, again, to face up to. In, in the way, as we look at it in a bit more depth, in the way that different sections of the people of Israel responded to this challenge, and also in why they responded as they did. Now, it's a, a challenge to look at this because it maybe reveals to us and asks questions about where our hearts are. But I think that's a challenge that we need to face up to, where our hearts really are. Not what we say, but where they are. So let's look here then, first of all, at the response to begin, the response of the willing. The response of the willing. And we find that from some, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. The details we find here in general terms reveal that so clearly. The fact that this was first a, a spontaneous response. Verse 2 says, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the princes willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. In fact, so overwhelmed are, are Deborah and Barak by this response that they basically repeat themselves again in verse 9. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Now, the words that are used here, the, the underlying Hebrew words, particularly one, the one that's translated volunteers, are interesting because the whole flavor of that word is, is something that's done freely, willingly, eagerly. And that word volunteer is, is used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of the spontaneous free will offering, the offering that's given simply because a man or a woman loved God and they want to express it. And most wonderfully of all, it's used in Hosea 14 verse 4 to describe there the way that God's love flows out to men. That is freely, spontaneously, that love given with no thought of gain, with no strings attached. So you see, Deborah and Barak, they didn't have to coerce these people here. They didn't have to plead with them. They didn't have to twist their arms. They didn't have to emotionally manipulate them into making a commitment. They didn't have to run some kind of almost advertising campaign, if you like, that tries to hide the, the hard work and the cost and pain behind the thought of, of possible benefit. You know, the, the kind of thing we used to have, join the army and see the world, that old advert that neglects to mention that in the process... You might have to kill people and attempts might be made to kill you. But you see, Deborah and Barak, they didn't do this. They didn't try to hide the enormous challenge that, that taking on Sisera and his armies were behind any fairy tale talk of how wonderful life would be without them, presenting that without the reality of the challenge. No, rather, they presented the people here simply, clearly, with a call and a challenge from the heart of God. And from many, they received a free, spontaneous, unhesitating response to that challenge. But as well as this being a spontaneous response, though, this was also a practical response. Now, there's a number of verses we could use 
to illustrate this, but what about verse 13? Then the men who were left came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came to me with the mighty. Now, the significant word there is that word came. The fact that this verse talks of all the people coming one after another to offer themselves to God, to offer themselves in God's service. Now, you see, what this is saying here is that, that this people got down to action. That whatever was going on in them, it moved them to do more than just feel something should be done. Rather, it moved them to actually do something about it. It moved them from sitting, if you like, in the equivalent of their armchair, feeling bad about the situation, to actually getting down, getting into the front line, and fighting the battle. And notice also that this was something that was widespread. This was something that affected every sector of Israelite society, both the leaders and the people, all were touched. You see, the leaders didn't stand back and say, you know, you peasants down there, you got on with the fight. And we'll stand back and plan and think it all out. No, neither did the people. Neither did they say, hey, listen, you leaders got on with the job. You know, you took on the responsibility. It's yours. You got on. You fight it. You do it. No, rather, both, all were prepared to roll up their sleeves and together to fight the battle. And of course, each had their individual responsibility, and certainly if they were to fight this battle effectively, the leaders would have to lead and the people would have to follow. The important point, though, is that each one here is willing to play their part to the very full. Now, as we said earlier, these general details that we just looked at reveal, I think, just so clearly how amazing this response to the people here was. Well, that's confirmed as we look and move on to it also, at certain of their actions, in particular, certain groups. For what does it say as we look at this about the tribes? Well, in, in verse 15, the, the tribe of Issachar is pictured in the battle as running as fast as they can at the heels of Barak, their general, as rushing after them as quickly as possible to get into the battle. In verse 18, it talks of the people of Zebulun risking their very lives. In the same verse, it talks of the, the tribe of Naphtali as being on the heights of the field. Now, what that means is that they deliberately chose to fight where the battle was raging most fiercely. Wasn't that amazing, though, that these men were willing to rush into battle, ready to risk their lives, even to give their lives in this kind of way? And so, I think the the question we have to ask then is, what was their motivation? Why is it that they were so willing to give of themselves in this kind of free and sacrificial way? What was it that led this people to this kind of amazing response? Well, as I see it, there are two different factors at work here. One is their attitude towards God. That's what motivated them. And verse 31, I think, sums up the, the essence of this attitude. It says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun 
when it rises in its strength. You see, these volunteers here, they were the, the righteous part of the nation. That part of the nation who, when others were falling away, who still knew what it was like to love God. And it was this love for God. It was this that was the secret of their lives. Because let me tell you, when God possesses our hearts, when He really does, then we will want to serve Him. And we'll do that freely, enthusiastically. We'll do it spontaneously. We won't be able to stop ourselves when that love of God is reigning. However, when our love for God is gone, or when our love for God in some sense is not what it should be, then our desire to serve, and I would say every other part of our life, will be out of order, out of line, out of sync. I mean, do you remember Jesus' famous conversation with Peter in John 21? He asked him two basic questions, or rather, he asked him one question, and on the base of that, he instructed him. Remember, Simon, do you love me? Then he says, feed my sheep. Do you see it? It's first love. That's what comes first. And then everything else flows out of that love. Is there maybe a message there for some of us who maybe experience difficulties of different kinds in different areas of our life? You know, maybe we, we lack now the enthusiasm and we lack the fire they once, we once had for God and His service. Or maybe we're finding that increasingly we're we're having problems with people, different personality clashes, maybe at, at home or at church, at work, in school. And when that happens, it's so easy to look all around us in order to try and sort this out. It's so easy to blame other people, so easy to blame the church, so easy to blame maybe family members or people, colleagues we work with because of how we feel and how hard life is for us right now. But I just want to ask the question. You've got to ask, answer it for yourself. Could it be that really our root problem is that we've lost our first love for the Lord? Listen, it may well be that there are other problems in all these different areas of our lives. But ask yourself, if you were really right with the Lord, if His love was really alive in you and so flowing from you, well, then wouldn't you be able to deal with these things? Wouldn't you be able to deal with these people, deal with these problems and challenges so much better? You see, it's no use trying to change other people. And it's no use trying to change circumstances around us it's no use, at least not at first. It's, that's not the first point. No, because all this, the striving and the struggling, all the anger and agitation, all of that is useless and pointless. What we rather, I think, need to do before we do anything else is get ourselves right. Is get down on our knees and rediscover that love for the Lord. We maybe need to take time to realize again what we've perhaps over the years begun to take 
for granted. That is how great that love was that sent Jesus to the cross. To realize that that same Jesus loves us and wants to know us personally and cares about that. Think of that. He wants to know us. And then we need to bathe in that love and we need to let that love flow from our lives. And you know, when that love of Jesus really is active and working in our hearts, then it's not a matter of having to force ourselves to love, force ourselves to serve. And we won't be able to stop ourselves. So do you need to fall in love again with Jesus? Is that your real problem today? Face up to it. Don't run away from that. Because if the answer is yes, you need to deal with that before you do anything else. But if their attitude towards God, if their love for God was part of the secret of their motivation, then the other and closely connected dimension to this was in fact their attitude towards service. And just what their attitude was is given away in maybe a a rather negative manner, but in in what it says in verse 23 about the little town of Meros. Because you see, it would seem that Meros, whose exact location is now unknown, that this was a town that could in some way have halted or at least could have hindered the Canaanites' battle march. But you see, they chose not to. But what's interesting is that this is seen not as a refusal to help to serve the armies of Israel, not as a refusal to come to the aid of of Barak or even Deborah, but rather this is seen as a refusal to serve the Lord. Verse 23, Curse Meros, said the angel of the Lord, because they did not come to help the Lord. But you see, the reverse of this is that this is what the willing volunteers here, this is what they were doing. Oh, they were fighting for their country. Yes, they were. They were fighting for their family, fighting for their future, fighting for their own well-being. They were doing all of that. But you see, ultimately, at heart, at root, what they were doing was they were fighting for the Lord. They were serving the Lord. Do you see, though, how this is in itself a motivation for service? Because, you see, too often in our service, we get confused as Christians by our desire to please people. Or, and really for that, that should I say, we then get hurt by what we perceive as their ingratitude, as their taken of us for granted. And so when that happens, you know, our our service becomes a struggle. We feel like giving up or we just decide, hey, listen, I'm going to give up. I don't want any more to do with that. What I want to say to you is, is while, of course, we are human and it's always good to be loved and appreciated by our brothers and sisters, yet, you know, the bottom line is that service will never be truly committed Our service will always lack 
stickability, and even our service will always be ultimately meaningless and worthless to God unless at heart, and the heart's what matters, when everything else is taken away, it is a service to the Lord. It's born out of love for the Lord. I want to say to you, if only this was true of of more Christians, if only we've got this biblical principle sorted out, thought out, and in place in our lives, then how much more stability there would be in the church and in the ministries of the church. But that, though, was the response from some among Israel. For some of its underlying motivation. That was their response to the enormous challenge laid before them by the Lord. And it was amazing. It was an amazing response. But you know, as much as this was the case, yet we also have to say that what we're going to move on to look at now equally was true. And that is that the reluctance of others was heartbreaking heartbreaking. For there were four and a half tribes of Israel among the people of God, four and a half tribes that blatantly, outrightly refused to serve God as they should. And while we've already touched on some of the reasons and certainly the underlying reasons, the the motivational reasons why we might refuse to serve the Lord, yet what we've got outlined for us here are four very different, very practical ways in which this reluctant spirit, heart spirit, might work its way out in our lives. And the first of these is found in the attitude of Reuben, which is laid out in the second half of verse 15 and 16. It says, In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of hearts. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling of the flocks? In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Now, I believe that what we have here is a group of people who emotionally were stirred, whose hearts were moved, but things never went any further than that. They never actually moved into action. You see, they might, and it would seem they did, they might have held a meeting and and decided together, listen, it would be a good idea to send a group from our tribe to join the army fighting Caesar. They might even have went further. They might have gathered them together. They might have drilled them and trained them and been prepared, but they never actually got down to sending them into the front line. Rather, it says here, they stayed at home listening to the whistling of the flocks. That is, listening to the pipes, listening to that music, soothing music that the shepherds played to settle their sheep. And maybe even as they did this, as they listened to that music, they were dreaming of what they were going to do in battle. But they never actually got down to doing it. You know, it's so easy to be a person like that because it sounds so good and it costs so little. 
It's so easy to be someone who's emotionally moved by God's Word or, or by a sermon, by a song, whatever. And it's so easy to be someone then who's so ready to talk of our, our, of our love for the Lord and of how much someday we want to do for Him. And yet to be someone who at the same time lacks the basic commitment to even, never mind do that, attend the next worship service or prayer meeting. Well, the second example of this reluctant spirit is, is found here in verse 17 in the reaction of the tribe of Gilead to the challenge laid before them. Because there it says, simply and straightforwardly, it says Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Now, it's important to note here, just for a starter, that Gilead isn't actually the name of one tribe, but rather it's a group name for two tribes, for Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these, this group in the, in the book of Joshua, when Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, this group refused to go with their brothers and sisters. And maybe it's slightly speculative, but I would surmise that what happened is that through time, the fact that by their choice they'd cut themselves off from fellowship, from their fellow believers, led them gradually less and less to identify with them, to identify with the people of God. And so, moving on from that, as they ceased to practically identify with God's people because of their failure to share fellowship, so finally, they lost their passion to serve and even their passion for God Himself. And I'm not going to labor it, but I'm, I've seen it, and I'm sure many of you have seen the same process repeat itself so many times, time and time again. Christians who at some point felt that they didn't really need fellowship all that much. You know, that they were strong enough in themselves, they would be fine. So they kind of begin to drift away, and it builds up and it builds up. But too often, it all ends in disaster. Spiritual disaster. Every kind of disaster. The third example of this reluctant spirit, the third way that this reveals itself is, is found here in Dan, in the tribe of Dan, again referred to in verse 17. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? And again, we maybe have to do a bit of kind of biblical detective work here, but if the problem of Gilead was a lack of fellowship, then the problem of Dan, I believe, was a lack of growth. For back in Judges 1, 34 to 36, we find there that Dan failed to take the land given to them by God, and in fact that they were driven back from that land into the mountains. So you see, they refused to obey God. They refused to put their trust in God and to walk out in faith and do what God had called them to do. And so because of that, they became a weak and powerless people. They became a people who failed to, to fulfill their potential in the Lord, who failed to grow as they should in the Lord, until finally, later in Judges 18, we find that they have moved totally away from any kind of resemblance of the people of God to actually indulge in the worship 
of idols. You see what that's saying though? I believe that that's what, what that's warning us is that if we don't grow and go forward in the Lord, that if we don't do the things that are necessary to grow in the Lord, then we won't stand still because the devil doesn't allow that. Rather, we'll go back. We'll get pushed back, back further and further. And one of the sure signs that this is happening in our lives is when we lack an eager spirit, a love for God, and a desire to serve as the result of that. Well, finally, the final example of, of this is found in Asher, in verse 17 there, where it says, Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Now, you see, Asher as a tribe actually lived beside, right beside, the prosperous seaports. The seaports where there was money to be made and work to be done. And you can see, you can imagine what happened here. I'm sure you can. That the things of this world, money, prosperity, a desire to advance your business, to develop your career, that these things began to so dominate their thinking, their vision and outlook on life, that their passion for the Lord and His work died away. And they lost any kind of desire to serve. And so you see, when the, the call went out that people might join the armies of God to take on this mighty challenge, well, there were no takers in Asher. There were no volunteers why waste your time on what seemed to be mission impossible for God when there was money to be made and luxuries to be enjoyed? It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Frightfully so. But at the end of it all, though, the question we have to ask of ourselves is what today is my response to God? And what does that say about spiritually where I am right now and spiritually the direction that I'm heading in? I mean, do we serve reluctantly for any of the, the reasons that we've mentioned? Or do we maybe serve him, but we serve as a mercenary? We're always looking for what's in it for me. Or do we serve maybe as a glory hunter? We're always wanting to be, if you like, Barak. We always want to be the general, up front, in the spotlight. I want to be there. I want to be seen and appreciated. Or I'm not going to play the game. Or do we maybe even refuse to serve at all? But finally, do we serve freely and voluntarily and willingly? Do we give him all that we are? Do we do it because we're responding to his amazing love? And we're doing that by giving of ourselves in return, in love to God and the people of God in a way that can amaze this world. What I want to say to you is that it's only in giving of ourselves, in serving in this kind of way, out of this kind of motivation, from this kind of heart, it's only in this way 
that we can know true and lasting joy and fulfillment in life. I mean, look here in this chapter. Deborah and those who serve with her. It's they who are singing the song of triumph because they have known the joy of serving and giving to God. And you find exactly the same thing in 1 Chronicles 29. Expressed there in a lovely way that there were the people who'd served at that point and given of their very best to build the temple. Then in verse 9 we read, Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. That's where joy comes from. That's the source of the believer's greatest joy. Having received from God, being blessed by Him so incredibly in Jesus, giving then and giving of ourselves back to God. To a God who again gives, who again fills our lives, who again blesses us with his love and pleasure. So I want to say to you today, Christian, give of yourself to God. Give him of all you are. Serve him, offer him everything that you are because he deserves it. And as you do that, you'll find that what Scripture promises is true, that God is no man's debtor. God will be with you. God will use you. God will bless you. Let's go forward. Trusting in Him. Serving Him. Loving Him. As His people. Let's pray together now. Father, we just want to thank You for the example of Your people throughout history. That it's as they truly served You that they found joy in You. And it was as they loved you that they wanted to serve you, as they took time and appreciated what you'd done for them and who you are. Lord, if that's where we're at today, if we need to sort that out today, help us to do it. But Father, may all your people find their joy in knowing you and serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.